For the first time in 2022, welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. Whether you're a new or a returning listener, we're glad to have you with us to start the new year. As a reminder, here's how the show is broken down. We'll start by touching on some recent headlines in Hoosier Law before sitting down for an extended interview with a member of the Indiana legal community. This week's guest is Indiana Public Access Counselor Luke Britt, who gave us some insight on his office and public access laws in Indiana. We've got some ground to cover since we were off last episode for the holidays, so let's get rolling. Today is January 12th, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some news out of Indianapolis. On January 5th, former Marion County Prosecutor Carl Brizzy died at a hospital in Carmel after suffering a stroke. He was 53. A native of Brooklyn, New York, Brizzy earned his undergraduate degree from Indiana University and his JD from Valparaiso University. He got into politics in 1994 when he worked on Republican Scott Newman's campaign for Marion County Prosecutor. Brizzy worked under Newman for a time before becoming senior investigative counsel in Congress, then opening a private practice. He returned to the prosecutor's office as its leader after a successful campaign in 2002. Brizzy served two terms as the Marion County Prosecutor from 2003 to 2010. He then moved into private practice, most recently working as of counsel at the Indianapolis law firm Lewis & Wilkins, where he practiced personal injury and business litigation. He also ran in the GOP primary for Indiana's 5th Congressional District in 2020, but he was not successful. Attorneys who worked with Brizzy are remembering him as a prosecutor who truly cared for his community. One lawyer recalled Brizzy donning an orange vest and standing watch as he worked to end a crime spree that was targeting local kids. Brizzy also found himself involved in multiple controversies toward the end of his time in office and during the years that followed. The Indiana Supreme Court publicly reprimanded him once and suspended his law license for 30 days in 2017. Brizzy joined Lewis and Wilkins in 2018. In addition to his law practice, Brizzy hosted his own podcast, radio show, and blog. Staying in Indianapolis, let's check in with the Indiana Legislature. The 2022 session of the Indiana General Assembly began January 4th, with lawmakers returning to their statehouse chambers after last year's session was held in the Indiana Government Center, which has more room for social distancing. Committee meetings are once again open to the public, and masks are optional. Indiana lawyer was at the statehouse for the legislature's opening day. Iowa reporter Katie Stancombe was there for that first day. So on the first day, it was really nice. You could tell the energy was really high already on day one. The committee hearing that I attended was the Senate Corrections and Criminal Law Committee, and it was full of people. There were a lot of people from the community. There were a lot of people, reporters were there, and legislators. I think it set off a good foundation for what the session's going to look like. Even though it's not a budget year, I think there's still going to be a lot of activity and action taking place this year. There's always a lot to cover during the legislative session. This year, we're following bills addressing issues including civil forfeiture, obstruction of justice, prosecutors, magistrate judges, and more issues relevant to Indiana's legal community. Check back with us through the end of this session in March for regular updates. There's one update from the State House that we can already share with you. You've probably heard of House Bill 1001, the bill meant to protect religious and medical objections to workplace COVID vaccine mandates. On January 6th, a House committee approved that bill largely along party lines. The IBJ reported that some amendments have already been made to HB 1001. Among those amendments was one that would allow employees who are fired for refusing to get a COVID vaccine to draw unemployment benefits at the expense of their former employer. 
According to Representative Matt Lehman, the amendments are designed to address concerns raised during a total of 14 hours of public testimony the General Assembly heard at the end of 2021. Some of those who testified were strongly against the bill. Here's Dr. Gabriel Boslett of the Indiana University School of Medicine. I'm tired. And if I seem frustrated, I am. Because we've been doing this for almost two years. And we can't do it much longer. I just want this to end. I don't want to wear this mask anymore. I don't want to care for dying COVID-19 patients in my intensive security unit. The reason that I submitted to the committee a letter from that has been signed by over 460 Hoosier physicians was because we almost unanimously reject the language of this bill for growing vaccines. Why? Because the message this bill sends is that vaccines are not important. Vaccines are not important. They're the only way to end this. Others supported the bill and urged the legislature to go even further by banning vaccine mandates completely. One such person was James Bopp, a conservative lawyer with the Bopp Law Firm in Terre Haute. It may be, however, and the science uh, seems to suggest, that COVID-19 vaccines do help people who get infected by ameliorating the adverse effects of, of the COVID-19 virus, so that it has a medically beneficial effect on the particular person, but has no public policy, has no public health benefit because people can still get uh, infected. Now, as far as the law is concerned, we treat these two situations radically different. That is, uh, our law is based on freedom, freedom to choose. Individuals make their own decisions about their own lives. That's the default position. We'll follow HB 1001 along with several others throughout the session. We've got one more piece of news out of the Indiana State House. Governor Eric Holcomb is moving forward with his bid to convince the Indiana Supreme Court to overturn a 2021 law that allows the General Assembly to call itself into a special session. IL editor Olivia Covington has that story for you. On January 5th, Governor Eric Holcomb filed his appellant's brief with the Indiana Supreme Court, which is considering his challenge to House Enrolled Act 1123 on an expedited schedule. In case you've forgotten, HEA 1123 allows the General Assembly to call itself into a special session when a public emergency has been declared, such as the ongoing COVID public health emergency. As in his previous court filings, the governor is asking the Supreme Court to throw out HEA 1123 on Indiana constitutional grounds, arguing the law violates the state's separation of powers clause and Article 4, Section 9 of the Indiana Constitution, which he says gives only the governor the power to call the legislature into a special session. Because of that provision, Holcomb says the law is akin to a constitutional amendment. If the General Assembly wants the authority to call itself into special session, then the governor says lawmakers must go through the process of drafting an amendment and asking Hoosier voters to ratify it. The General Assembly has until February 4th to submit an appellee's brief. The High Court will hear oral arguments in the case on April 7th. Check back with our website periodically for continued updates. Thanks for the update, Olivia. Now for some court news. Throughout 2021, state and federal courts slowly eased off some of the COVID restrictions that were put in place in 2020. But at the start of 2022, with a surge in cases across Indiana and rising hospitalizations, some state courts put those restrictions back in place. In Marion County, jury trials have been continued and will be reset after January 21st, after nearly 40 court employees tested positive for COVID. Masks will be required for all individuals to and up who visit a court facility, 
and capacity has been reduced to 50%. The Madison Circuit Courts had previously suspended its trial through January 17th, but later extended the suspension until the county moves out of the state's red advisory level. And in Lake County criminal courts, jury trials are moving forward for incarcerated defendants, but trials for non-incarcerated individuals can be continued at the court's discretion. Also, Lake County criminal courts will be enforcing masking and social distancing, and courtroom capacity has been reduced to one individual accompanying the defendant and one accompanying the complaining witness of the alleged crime. If we hear of any more protocol changes in state or federal courts, we'll be sure to let you know on our website. Our next headline comes from the Court of Appeals of Indiana. I wrote about an interesting decision on January 4th in which the COA urged the Indiana Supreme Court to revisit a 37-year-old precedent. The case was Mingus v. State, and it involved a police report that led to the defendant being charged with two OWI accounts. The prosecutor would only allow the defense to view the report in the prosecutor's office and would not provide a physical or digital copy. The defense filed a motion to compel, but the trial court denied the motion, relying on the Indiana Supreme Court's 1985 decision in Keaton v. Circuit Court of Rush County. In Keaton, the Supreme Court ruled that the work product doctrine should apply to police reports, which, quote, constitute the work product of the prosecuting attorney. According to the Supreme Court, producing complete police reports would place an undue burden on prosecutors by forcing them to remove non-discoverable information from those reports. The Court of Appeals affirmed in the Mingus case based on Keaton, but it called on the Supreme Court to revisit its 1985 precedent. According to the COA, Keaton gives prosecutors a blanket privilege to use the work product doctrine while all other litigants must prove that the privilege applies. In a concurrence, Judge Mark Bailey urged the Supreme Court to, quote, embrace the tried and true analytical approach for analyzing work product claims. We'll keep an eye on the Supreme Court's upcoming transfer decisions to see if the justices decide to revisit the issue. In lighter news, right before the turn of the new year, the Indiana Bar Foundation made a big announcement. With a big boost from what is possibly the largest influx of financial support it has ever received, the Indiana Bar Foundation is using a $13.1 million grant from the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority to launch a series of initiatives to help guide Hoosiers facing housing problems through the civil legal system. The programs and services, including kiosks where tenants and landlords can access self-help legal forms and legal navigators, which will provide legal information to pro se litigants, have been in the Bar Foundation's long-range plans for years, but are now becoming reality thanks to the grant money. Moreover, the hope is that the infrastructure built with the funds to address legal problems in housing will be able to be used in the future to assist Hoosiers with other civil legal needs. The grant dwarfs the nearly $8 million the Bar Foundation received from the $16.65 billion settlement Bank of America reached in 2014 with the federal government for financial fraud during the mortgage meltdown, which led to the Great Recession. We'll be keeping up with the projects as they unfold. All right, let's wrap up with a preview of what's coming in our January 19th issue. In that issue, we're going to be introducing a new focus section called Law Firm Combinations. Like the name implies, this focus section will explore trends in the law firm M&A market and will highlight Indiana law firms that have recently combined. IELTS senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl is working on a story about Project Golden Spike, the growth strategy that led to the creation of Denton's Bingham Greenbaum in Indiana, and that is the blueprint for Denton's growth nationwide. In a separate story, Katie Stancombe is going to take a broader look at the law firm combinations generally, and she's going to find out how the pandemic has affected combinations happening here in Indiana. You can read both of those stories in our next issue. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. Stick around to hear my interview with Luke Britt, Indiana's longest-serving public access counselor. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana Public Access Counselor Luke Britt here in studio with us today. Luke, thanks so much for joining us. Before we get started, here's a little background on the PAC. Governor Frank O'Bannon created this office by executive order in 1998 after a statewide collaboration of seven newspapers found obstacles in obtaining government information in Indiana. The General Assembly then created the nonpartisan office by statute in 1999. The Public Access Counselor provides advice and assistance concerning Indiana's public access laws to members of the public and government officials and their employees. Luke was appointed by then-Governor Mike Pence in 2013 and has has since been reappointed twice by uh, Governor Eric Holcomb, um, including most recently this past October. So your current term, I believe, goes through 2025. Is that right? Correct, yes. Awesome, awesome. Many uh, know that you're the longest-serving public access counselor in Indiana's history, but what did you do professionally before taking office? And uh, I I know that you're a lawyer, so how has that kind of also kind of shaped who you are and what you're doing today. Sure, yeah, I spent uh, about five minutes in the private sector uh, down in Johnson County um, to law school in Michigan, but then immediately moved home after graduation. So spent a little time down there, just kind of learning a little bit about how how the court system works, really. And then quickly transitioned only after a matter of months to the State Department of Health and worked as a staff attorney for them for a number of years and then kind of moved up into management and operations there at ISDH and now IDOH. And spent a little bit of time in between at the Department of Child Services. And then in 2013, I was kind of plucked out of relative obscurity to be the public access counselor. And so, yeah, this is this will be my ninth year starting uh, in, in October. So as part of your job, you issue advisory and informal opinions. I believe in an email you sent me last week, uh, you get around 500 to 600 complaints a year. Kind of take me through the process of how you sift through those complaints. Sure, yeah. Um, mail comes twice a day. Yeah. So we uh, we expect those to come in. Um, we, we, we take a look at those. The majority of the complaints that we get are from DOC inmates. Um, and... Some of them are, are fairly substantive and well-written and have um, ish, meritorious issues to address, and others we just can't. Um, it, it's beyond the scope of our jurisdiction to address. A lot of post-conviction relief issues that, that may have a public access flavor, but at the same time they have discovery mechanisms available to them and, and PCR proceedings, so we deflect some of those. And then the others that we get, are, are we sort through to try to identify those issues um, that, that we can address. I think the scope of, of, of my jurisdiction and my authority is sometimes misunderstood, and, and people give me a little broader uh, credit than, than, than I actually have statutorily. So we try to screen those out. But if there is an issue that we can address, we certainly want to want to do that, and, and we have to statutorily. So you know, those are, those are the ones that, that actually um, get investigated. Mm-hmm. So kind of building off that question, how long does it take to form an advisory opinion? Uh, how do you reach a conclusion? What goes into all of that? And how, how, does your, how do these opinions kind of translate to the courts and, and the legal system? Yeah, it really depends on the type of issue. I mean, 
the ones we see now compared to when I started in 2013 are incredibly more complex uh, and nuanced than, than they have been. Um, and so some we can kind of dispose of in in a month or so, depending on when they fall in the queue on, on our docket. But some just have such kind of deep issues that we, we have to take our time uh, to do the research, to get it right. And so those could take those could take a little longer, I think, than the General Assembly anticipated, uh, you know, when they put uh, put together my enabling statute. But we just want to make sure that we, we cover our bases and that those issues are, are thoughtfully addressed. As far as as how they interplay with, with the courts, I'd, I'd say that about 5% of all of the complaints that go through my office are are appealed for judicial review. And then there are some that don't go through my office, a, a smaller percentage, uh, access issues that just kind of arise out of an, a, a new um, action. So statutorily, um, the courts will address those de novo. Uh, if they do go through my office, it's an exhaustion of administrative remedies. So they're standing for court costs and attorney's fees and things like that. But, but at least substantively, the court will look at it uh, with, with a clean slate. Now, as persuasive authority, they can take my opinion and they can uh, they can give it deference, or you know they can throw it in the circular file cabinet. You know they don't have they don't owe me anything. I don't expect that, and so I I just want to craft an opinion so that if it is used as persuasive persuasive authority, that a judge would be comfortable relying on my subject matter expertise when when making their own findings and conclusions. Mm-hmm. And I think you also have a little bit of a journalism background. Is that right? So it kind of plays into this as well. You know, you're getting all this information that you're trying to gather, kind of like what we do uh, when we're writing a story. When you open and start looking into something, how, how long does it, how long do these agencies have to respond to you? How does that all kind of work? That's a little bit fungible. There's, there's no statutory authority on that. So we kind of run that process on an as-needed basis. Rule of thumb, we give an agency about 15 business days to respond. So they have a full three weeks to, to get back with us. Because um, a lot of times they'll have to do their own response. And, and to these um, complex issues, they have to do their own investigation, their own legal research and analysis, and then get back with us. And we, um, you know, we, we immediately give them the notice to get the ball rolling so that they know that they're on the clock. But then we, we if they need an extension, just like a court would, they, they would ask for a continuance. And, and I don't think I've ever denied one, uh, just because I know that, you know, while public access is, is one priority when it comes to a government unit, it's not the priority. So I think it's integrated in, in other responsibilities and duties, but we, we try to be cognizant of those other things that they do as well. If someone violates the open door law, if you find that they, you know, something went awry, what is the penalty? What are the next steps? Well, my expectation is always course, course correction. That's, that's what I want to see. I don't want to see a government agency mired in court. Um, I don't want to see a complainant have to go through that either. So my number one goal is compliance. And so I, I think at this point, we have a pretty good success rate of encouraging compliance. I never like to play gotcha with my opinions. No, I will make a def- definitive conclusion uh, a lot of times saying there's been a violation or non-compliance. But my goal, again, is, is to bring them in and to make sure that um, there's a satisfactory resolution that's consistent with the law and with my interpretation of, of the law. And so 
if, if that process fails, and sometimes it does, again, there is a cause of action under the, both the Open Door Law and the Access to Public Records Act to file a lawsuit in court, and then um, a judge will take it from there. And so as far as, you know, my opinions being upheld, for lack of a better term, we, we have about a 50-50 rate at the, at the trial court level, and then the, the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court has sussed out a couple issues as well, so... Since you've taken office, uh, the number of complaints, have you seen them rise? And also during COVID, what have you kind of seen over the past two years? Yeah, every year has increased. Um, so when I started in 2013, I think we were looking at about 375 complaints, and I addressed almost all of them then. And if you go back and, and see those published opinions on, on our website, they're fairly cursory. Uh, they don't go into some of the deep dives that we do now. And that was just because it was more of a quantity over quality game at that point. Well, since then, I've kind of found my footing and figured out a way to address some of those substantive issues and, and kind of not dismiss the rest, but at least address the remainder with um, in, in, a, in a more administrative but less legal, you know, deep dive legal analysis way. And that's been pretty successful. But yes, I mean, those those complaints have increased the request for assistance, just non-complaints, but phone calls, emails, drop-ins, you know, they've increased exponentially. And so we were given some flexibility with our budget to bring on additional staff, and I was able to deputize someone, which has been huge. He has a journalism background as well, and that w once I brought him on, that's when those opinions really started to take shape, um, and we were able to give some more thoughtfulness to what we, we actually published online, which I think is, has been a good resource for folks. But then um, during COVID, it, it was interesting. You know, initially we had issues with, with just, just data, you know, that were collected either by local health departments or the State Department of Health. And so sorting out the, what, was, what was meaningful to the public versus what might be personal health information on, you know, things like death certificates and, and things like that. So a lot of those issues right at the beginning of, of, of the pandemic, we were all working from home at that, at that point so that it, you know, added a, an additional challenge. But then certainly those issues persist and we still address COVID-related issues, but in 2021 particularly has been the school board issue. And so that has, that has been an unprecedented and unforeseen circumstance that really threw a wrench into our operation. We got, you know, in mid-2021, June, July, August, we probably got 150 complaints about school board meetings alone and so sorting through those and and uh, addressing issues that we that we'd never really tackled before became a, a real challenge yeah absolutely that kind of goes into my uh, my next question um, just how much public access should there be with these records um, is there a fine line uh, should anyone have these public records on demand with with the technology we have now and, and one of the things that I've seen recently is there's a lot of requests for these emails, right? Um, people are asking for these emails from government agencies. Uh, so, so where where is the line drawn, and what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I think the, the, you know the opinions that I write kind of speak for themselves on the matter of technology. You know, it's what I what I don't think the General Assembly intended. What I don't think, you know, my interpretations are intended to do is to put a chilling effect on on government employees communicating with one another via email I mean that's just how we conduct business these days you know and and 
I don't come across a lot of emails that have those smoking gun, you know, really intricate conversations about policy. I mean, yeah, that the, that happens, but they're more like, hey, can we meet at three o'clock? Uh, especially text messages as well. So I don't think they're quite the treasure trove as, as people often expect, um, but it is a worthwhile exercise to at least make the request because you never know what's going to turn up. And so I would never discourage anyone from for asking for emails. But as we've evolved in our office and as, as jurisprudence has evolved a little bit over the past decade or so, we've seen that email requests and communication requests need to be tapered down and, and, and narrowly tailored to a degree that makes it practical for a government unit to actually compile all of this stuff and present it in some kind of coherent and co- cohesive package. And that's not, that's not to say that they can curate and go through and cherry pick which ones they want to give and which ones they don't, at, le- at least beyond what the law allows. But it just means that if I'm asking for something from a public employee, I should have a pretty good idea that it exists and not just throw out a wide net and see what what comes up. So we counsel requesters just as much as we counsel, you know, the employees that receive the requests to craft a, 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 a good request that's consistent with my guidance and the court's rulings and put together something that, that, that works. But it's a challenge and it changes as technology evolves, you know, especially with social media and you know, Twitter and Facebook and posting and likes and you know, all that blocking uh, people, all that stuff we've had to address over the past couple of years. What's the, what's the strangest case you've, came, you've come across so far? Strangest case, oh man, that's, uh, that's interesting. We've had, it's tough because because we do get a lot of DOC inmate um, requests, and some of them are a little strange, at asking and demanding for, uh, you know, relief that we just can't give, you know. But I think the most interesting case that we've dealt with, at least over the past, you know, during my tenure, was the um, an issue with the Notre Dame campus security or the Notre Dame police force. And that made a lot of headlines back in 2015, 2016. And that was, that, was a, that was a big issue to chew on. We debated in the office for you know, weeks on how we were going to address it and how we were going to handle it. But uh, in the end, you know, the, the courts took it from us and, and, and made their rulings. And the legislature made some changes. But that was probably the most involved. And, and to me, legally speaking, the most interesting case that, we, that we've handled. What's something that you'd like the legal community to maybe know about uh, you and your office that they maybe don't know? Just that we're here on the spot for resources, you know, for resources and guidance. You know, I, I take the term public access counselor very literally and um, providing guidance, providing advice before you jump in, especially if you're unfamiliar with how to engage with a, with a government unit, you know, Try to reach out to me first, and we can talk through an issue uh, before you, you know, dive head first, because it can be complex. And, and you know, we've been around long enough that we have a pretty good feel for how government works at both the state and local level, and that can be kind of a bureaucratic nightmare sometimes for people who are unfamiliar, unfamiliar with that kind of bureaucracy to navigate. And so we have some tips and tricks, and, and we try to be as approachable and accessible as pro- possible. That'll wrap up this week's episode. Thanks to Luke Britt once again for joining us on this week's podcast. Previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast can be found on theindianalawyer.com as well as on your favorite streaming services. 